0: Good morning. Uh, last week, I started my message with the question, uh, who is the smartest person who ever lived? And today I'd like to start with a different question. Uh, what is the greatest debt in your life? It's a heavy question, I know. Uh, there's lots of kinds of debts that we incur in our lives. There's our mortgages on our homes. Uh, there's car debt and uh, school loans. There's business loans. Uh, it may be credit card debt or maybe you just owe somebody some money. Um, All of us uh, have had experience with incurring debt in our lives. And I want you just to think a second about what that number is. You don't have to tell anybody. You don't have to write it down. But what is the largest debt in your life? Now, if you're here and you're in high school or junior high school, you may be thinking, well, I'm good. I'm off the hook because I don't have any debts. Not so fast. Don't forget about the national debt, the total accumulated debt. Of the United States. That number is 21 trillion with a T 21 trillion dollars. That's a lot of money. That's such a big number that you can't even picture it in your head. So I got a picture of a trillion dollars for you from the Internet. Take a look. Those are double stacked pallets of $10,000 bundles. And that guy standing in the bottom left corner is the average sized human being. We owe 21 trillion Of those or no, no, sorry. Twenty one of those twenty one trillion dollars total. And so what does that mean? That means for every man, woman and child who's a citizen of the United States. Your total portion of that debt is sixty four thousand dollars. And if you narrow it down to just the taxpayers, it's one hundred and forty seven thousand dollars per taxpayer. That's a big number. Well, that's my message. Let's go ahead and pray. Just kidding. That would not be a good place to end. I'm asking the question about debt, and I'm pointing out the national debt, because debt is the focus of the parable of Jesus we're going to look at today. It's the key thing at the heart of this parable, and it's a story about a guy who had a debt that was so big he could never pay it back, and how he responded when the king that he owed the money to forgave the debt. Spoiler alert, it doesn't end well for this guy. But Jesus wants us to understand how his father rules his kingdom and how he looks at situations involving sin and conflict and how he responds to those situations and how he wants us to look at situations of sin and conflict in our lives and how God wants us to respond if we're willing. But if we're not willing, the price is far greater than we can pay. And so I'd like us to look at the parable Uh, You can find it in Matthew 18. And the context is uh, dealing with sin in the church. Jesus is teaching his disciples about how to deal with sin personally and corporately as a church. And at the end of the parable, or I'm sorry, at the end of the teaching, uh, one of Jesus' disciples, Peter, comes up to him and says, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother? He wants to know about what to do in situations where someone has sinned against him personally. And here's what Jesus says. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I don't say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slave. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that they had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and he prostrated himself before him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him saying, pay back what you owe me. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling. He was unwilling. And went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So his fellow slave fellow slaves saw what had happened. They were deeply grieved and they came and they reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have also had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you do not forgive his brother from your heart. Now, that's a very sobering parable. That's kind of scary. Here's a guy with an unpayable debt, forgiven, and then unforgiven. Tortured. As I've been thinking about the parable, trying to understand what Jesus means, a couple key points um, have stood out to me, and I'd like to share this with you. The first is, in this story, the king is God, and I'm the slave. You're the slave. We're the slave. And we have an unpayable debt to God. But even though we have this debt to God, like this slave, I owe more than I realize. More than I even realize. Look at what Jesus says. He says, when, when he, that is the king, had begun to settle count, accounts, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he couldn't repay, the Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and his children and all that he had. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. This guy thinks that he can repay back the debt. He owed 10,000 talents. We don't use talents, right? So we don't know what that means, but that's the largest unit of measure at the time. And if you were to calculate it out, 10,000 talents today is $14 billion. This slave owed $14 billion. <laughs> I don't know how a slave racks up a 14 billion dollar debt, casinos, Amazon Prime. Now, it's hard to picture a billion dollars. So here's another picture. That's a billion dollars. This man owed 14 of those. Now, if he tried to pay it back like he says he's going to do, and he made $50,000 a year, average American income, it would take him 240,000 years to repay this debt. Now, I don't care how healthy he was or how much exercise he did or what his vitamin regimen was. He's not going to live two hundred and forty thousand years. He's not going to pay back this debt. And yet he's saying, be patient with me and I'll pay it back. And this is how we relate to God when we look at our sin. Human beings naturally try to justify and repay and make ourselves right with God. Most people have no problem admitting that they have sin in their lives That they've sinned against God. That they haven't loved God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Most people can admit that. But what we do is we tend to shrink down our debt and make it a more manageable figure. We can measure ourselves against other people and look to the left and look to the right and say, Well, I'm not as bad as them and I'm a little bit better than them. And it shrinks our debt down. But that's not what God sees when he looks at us. God's judgment upon the human race can be found in Romans 3.23, where he says, Yes, all have sinned. All fall short of God's glorious ideal. God created us with a purpose. Our lives were supposed to be full of righteousness and love, the way the ocean is full of water. When God looks at our life, He wants to see an ocean of righteousness and love. But instead, what He finds is a desert on fire, dry, full of sin. That's the fire. And so we look at our lives, and if we measure ourselves to each other, then we begin to think that our debt's not so big. But like this $14 billion debt, the debt we owe God because of the sin in our lives is unpayable. And we think that if we can just collect enough good works, our gallon of good works, and we dump it out into this desert, that it's somehow going to repay. It's somehow going to make up the difference. That's what religion is. It's a list of do's and don'ts that can earn your way back into God's blessing. But that's because we don't realize how much our debt is. We owe more than we realize. And that's why the next thing that Jesus says is so encouraging. He tells what the king did. He forgave the debt. Fourteen billion dollars. It says, so the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord, the king of that slave, felt compassion and mercy and love. And he released him. He forgave him the debt. This king absorbed the loss of all that money. When he forgave the debt, it didn't just disappear. He had taken $14 of his money and given it to this guy, and this guy had wasted it. So now this king is short $14 billion. And rather than make this man pay it back, he is going to absorb the loss. He's going to take the hit. And that's what God has done for us in Christ. God looked down upon the human race and saw our sin... And this this debt that we owed him because we have fallen short of the glory of God. And rather than make us pay the price, he sent his son, Jesus, who lived a perfect life, who had that ocean of righteousness and love. And rather than us die for our sin, Christ poured out all that righteousness. Upon you. And he took the death that we deserve. He died so that we can live He became poor so that we could become rich. We have been given more than we deserve. And when you understand this and you really see how much God loves you and the mercy that God has shown you on the cross, it changes your heart. It breaks your heart. It makes your heart soft and different. It makes your heart like God's heart. If it's truly captured you, if it's truly converted your soul. And so once you've been forgiven such a great debt, then I should settle my accounts according to what I have received, not according to what others owe. But that's not what this slave does. He doesn't focus on what he's been given, he focuses on what he's owed. And so it says, But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. That's just twelve thousand dollars. He owed twelve thousand dollars. That's something he could have paid back. But rather than forgive this man the way he had been forgiven fourteen billion dollars. It says that he seized him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, what you owe me, what I'm due, my offense, my reputation, me. He's still focused on himself and getting his. It says that the slave pleaded with him the exact same way that he pleaded with the king. He said, have patience with me and I will repay you. The same words that this wicked slave had said to the king. But he was unwilling. And this is key. There was no willing in him. He did not want to forgive this person. He did not want to release him. That was the truth about his heart. It's like this guy is standing in front of this ocean that's been poured out on his behalf. And all he can focus on is this little cup of water that this guy owes him. He's been given all this grace and all this credit, and he's got to get that cup he deserves. I got to get mine. And so what happens is this man brings torment and torture into his lives. And that happens to us. When we are unwilling to forgive, it brings torment into our lives. So you can see this passage. Could you raise the notes a little bit? No, uh, the next point. Sorry an unforgiving unforgiveness brings torment in verse 34 Jesus says and his Lord moved with anger handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him and my heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you do not forgive his brother from your heart now I've I've read different commentaries and and listen to some different messages on this particular parable. And what most of them will say when they get to this part about the torturers is, well, there's all sorts of psychological and physical problems that happen to people who don't forgive. And we all know that you could come up with all sorts of examples of that. But I don't think that's the tormentors that he's talking about. What he's talking about is demonic torment. Angels and demons are real. God created humans. He created angels And some of those angels have rebelled against God, demons destined for hell at odds with God, and they want to drag down as many people with them as possible. And they feed on sin. And when our lives and the waters of our lives are chummed with unforgiveness, they smell it and they come to torment. We open ourselves up to demonic torment and we would be very wise to deal with unforgiveness quickly, very quickly, so that there's no ground and no foothold that the devil can have. So as I back up and I look at this whole parable, an important point stands out to me, and it's this. An unforgiving heart, like this man, the wicked servant, an unforgiving heart reveals an unforgiven heart. An unforgiving heart reveals an unforgiven heart. He's not willing to forgive. It's not that he didn't say the words. It's not the action. It's that in his heart, there is no desire to forgive. It's hard to forgive people. People hurt you. They burn you. They disrespect you. They break your heart. Forgiveness doesn't mean that you just keep yourself in an abusive relationship. Forgiveness doesn't mean that you just extend trust and entrust yourself to someone who's proven themselves untrustworthy. That's not what creditors do. They can forgive your debt, but that doesn't mean they're going to loan you more money. Forgiveness means I am willing to extend good and love and respect and not withhold those things as a form of payment that they have to give me. It's a willingness way before it's an action and God will make you able to do it. We don't have to pretend and pretend like we could just say, well, I forgive you, and I just, I just magically change myself. That's not the way this works. But there's a willingness from God in us. We want to forgive, even though we, we can't. We don't feel like we can. We want to. That is a forgiving heart, and it reveals a forgiven heart. And Jesus says this in Matthew 6:14. He says, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins... Your father will not forgive your sins. This man, this wicked servant, was unforgiven at the end of the story. And maybe there's still time. Maybe he goes to to prison, to the tormenting, and he he comes to his senses, and he asks for forgiveness, and it sincerely changes his heart. But at the end of this story, the unforgiven is the one who is unforgiving. And so for me and for you, the question is, How do I forgive? What does it mean? What does it look like? How do you do it? Because the kingdom of God is a kingdom of the forgiven. If you have become a Christian, if you've looked at God and said, you're right, I've sinned, I have no way of justifying myself before you. There's no gallon of good works that I can do to fill the desert of sin in my life. I agree with you that I deserve the death that Christ received. But I am so grateful, God, that you have forgiven me and I accept Christ as my substitute. He died for me. And I am now willing to live for him. That's what it means to be a Christian. And if you've decided that, and you become alive in the kingdom of God, then you're alive with people who are forgiven like you. And so we, as new creations, as a new humanity, with a new heart, begin to work out forgiveness in our lives. And what does that look like? Well, I've created an acrostic for you on the handout. So if you don't have the the little... Program that goes along with this, I'd really encourage you to take that out. And there are seven letters in Forgive, and there are seven letters in the week. Hey, that works out great. And I want to encourage you to take one of these letters and the corresponding verses and read it each day this week. You can read it in the morning or at lunchtime or at night before bed. Read it and ask God to show you how to put it into practice, like Jesus said last week in the parable of the wise builder. And God will begin to work out in you the forgiveness. That he has in himself. So let's look at what it means to forgive. The first thing about forgiveness is you have to forsake bitterness. Hebrews twelve fifteen says, look after each other so that none of you fail to receive the grace of God. We can fail to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows to trouble you. Bitterness brings unforgiveness and unforgiveness brings torment, corrupting many. And it also spreads across the church. Is there somebody in the church that you just don't like to be around, rubs you the wrong way? Is there somebody here who's offended you or broken your heart or you feel like you haven't got what you need or what you deserve? We just moved from Diamond Bar to Ontario Ranch. There's lots of opportunities to rub each other the wrong way. There's all sorts of opportunities for offense and hurt and heartache. And these are all seeds. They can all grow into bitter roots. It may be real. It may not be real. But if we allow bitterness to grow in our hearts, then what happens is it begins to choke out the love that we are to have for others. And we begin to hold back from them the good that they're entitled to as children of God. It begins to divide the body, divide the family, divide the marriage. And so we have to do yard work every day. We've got to pull some weeds every night before we go to bed. We've got to rip out bitter roots That will grow into unforgiveness. Now you might be thinking, how can I, you don't understand my situation. There's someone in my life right now who is still sinning against me. They're still hurting me, wronging me. They're not even asking for forgiveness. How do I forgive them? Jesus actually shows us what it looks like. When he was being crucified, murdered, he's an innocent man. He doesn't retaliate. He doesn't curse these people. He doesn't say, you wait till my father gets a hold of you. What's he doing? He's praying for these people who are murdering him. Luke records this in Luke 23. He says, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided his clothes by casting lots. While they were murdering him, he was praying that God would forgive these people. They weren't asking for forgiveness. But he's willing to. He's still willing their good. He's still working for their good while they're murdering him. That same spirit of forgiveness and love, the spirit of Jesus, lives in each and every Christian, the Holy Spirit. And he will give you the desires and the thoughts and the emotions that you need to do in time what he did, which is to constantly repay evil with good and to be willing to forgive And to pull out bitter roots. But it starts with us making a decision, a commitment of the will that I am not going to allow bitterness to grow in my heart. How did he do it? That's the second point. Oh, Jesus knows that only God, the father, judges justly. And so Peter, one of his disciples who watched him get murdered, reflecting on what the Lord did on the cross, explains to a group of Christians like us how Jesus did it. And he says, when they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He was not defending himself. He was not justifying himself. He was not getting justice for himself. He handed all of that over to the Father. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And this is how we as Christians are able to extend love and forgiveness, even to people who are still wronging us. Because we know that God is with us, that he is good, that he is just, and that he will make all that is wrong right. He may make that wrong right now. He may make it right in a year. He may, you may have to wait to the end of time when all that is wrong is made right. But Jesus entrusted himself to the Father, and that was how he was able to extend this forgiving prayer. And so we don't repay people evil with evil. We repay people's evil towards us with good. This is a key distinction between Christians and... And those who have not experienced the forgiveness of God. If you've truly experienced God's forgiveness. He's repaid your evil and your sin with good. And so we extend the same good to others. We we help and we love and we serve. Regardless of how people are treating us. We absorb the cost. The way the king absorbed the cost. I can't absorb the cost. Yes you can. If the spirit of God lives in you. He will make you able to absorb the cost. And so this also means we have to, gee, get rid of get rid of your records of wrong. We have to take these, these old wounds and bitternesses, these things that have hurt us, maybe in our marriage, maybe offenses we have against our parents or against our kids or against our brothers and sisters here at Church in the Valley, things that start to kind of accumulate and bother us. And we simply have to tear up these lists because that's what God did for us in Christ on the cross. Paul wrote to the church in Colossae. He said, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him. Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses, all our debts by canceling the record that stood against us with its legal demands. This he he set aside, nailing it to the cross. It's as if God had taken a list of all of the sin that you have ever committed and that you will ever commit and all of the church. And he nailed it to the cross. And at the bottom, it said paid in full because this life, this ocean of righteousness and love that Jesus lived and had was poured out in your account. And the debt and the weight of the sin and the judgment that that sin deserved was given to him. And so God tore up the record. So when God looks at you, he's not thinking, well, I forgave you your past sins, but going forward, you better be on your best behavior. Well, we're not going to be okay. That's not how God works. God has torn up the record of your sin. If you've entrusted yourself to God through Christ and when he sees you, he's smiling. He loves you. He likes you. He delights in you. He wants to be close. He wants to share his life with you. Not a cold shoulder, a loving smile. A father to his children. Because of what Jesus did, that record is torn up. And so we do the same for others. We don't just say, well, I'm, I'm not, I don't have any problems with anybody. We stop. We think. Where is the bitterness in my heart? Jesus knows what he's talking about. He knows me better than I know myself. I'm going to put in the work. I'm going to take the 20 minutes at Starbucks on the napkin. To just ask the question, is there any bitterness in my heart? Who am I really offended by? And then God's going to show me. And I'm going to have a choice. I can hold on to it, focus on what you owe me, or I can tear it up as God tore it up for me. We also, if we're going to forgive, we have to initiate reconciliation. Now reconciliation is different than forgiveness. Reconciliation is when both sides are willing to admit their fault and come together and, and, you know, find peace. And you cannot make somebody else come and, and, and reconcile with you. But it's like tennis, right? You can walk all the way up to the net. You can do your 50%. And they may be standing all the way back against the back baseline, but you can do your part to come forward and reconcile. Reconciliation in the church is very important to God. It's so important that if we have some sort of conflict with someone in our lives, God wants us to stop what we're doing at church in a service like this and go reconcile with somebody else. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 5:23 through 24. He says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. This is more important than praising and singing. Praising and singing is good, but God wants His children to be reconciled to one another as we are reconciled to God through the cross. And so we take initiative. If we know there's some sort of tension between us and someone else, we actually go to them and say, Hey, can we talk? I feel like maybe I've done something to offend you. Or if you have an offense against someone you go to them honestly and say I just need to be honest I was offended by something you did something you said and i'd like to clear it up We're willing to do this Because god commands it and because god has taken the initiative to reconcile with us We view The situation and people through the cross. That's the v and forgive We remember the huge debt that we owed and the way it was paid by christ And that shrinks down other people's debt to its appropriate size. Yes, people sin against us. But when we consider how much God has forgiven us, it helps us to put in the proper perspective the sins of other people. And when we remember the cross and we see them through the cross, we just can't get too righteous. We just can't get too justified because look at how God has forgiven us. And finally, we have to do this every day. To forgive, you have to do this every day. Paul says, in your anger, do not sin, and do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Like sharks in the water, Satan and his demons are looking for unforgiving hearts to get a foothold in. And so every day, before we go to bed, or maybe when we wake up in the morning, we need to take stock of our relationships between us and God and us and others, and make sure that we have extended forgiveness and sought forgiveness because we, if we're a part of God's kingdom, are a part of the kingdom of the forgiven. So I'd like to finish with this question. Will you settle your accounts today? Will you settle your debts and your accounts? Those who owe you and those you owe. If you're willing, take a look at the connection card to the next steps on the back or on the handout that you got. There are three things you can do. To settle debts this week. The first is this. Confess your sin to God. As you begin to read the Bible and as you just your own moral conscience. God will bring to your mind things that you did. You wanted. You said you thought that were wrong and sin before him. Confess them. In Jesus name. And confess to others who you've sinned against. Go to them and ask for their forgiveness. Number two, you can, and I would encourage you to do this, write a list of of your top three grievances or offenses that you're feeling. It may be something from the past or something going on right now. Write it down and pray and ask God to help you forgive these people as he forgave you. And then tear it up as a symbol of your willingness, not like the wicked slave who was unwilling, but your willingness to forgive. There may be more to do. It may take more time to finally reconcile, but you're willing to do your part. And then finally, number three, take these seven letters from forgive and read one each week. or I'm sorry, each day of this week and ask God to show you how you can apply it. Allow God to work into your heart the forgiveness that he has in his. I hope this has been helpful and I hope that. Uh, well, I hope that God will use this this week. To purify us as his people and to make us forgiving and peaceful and, and loving as he is. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this um, this day that we get to worship you and for your word. Lord Jesus, thank you for teaching us about the kingdom of God. We're grateful for the forgiveness that we have and the debt that you paid. And we pray that we can extend that forgiveness to others. Lord, please help us to take one of these three steps and to experience the forgiveness Uh, that you want us to. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.